Hello, everyone. My name is Justin Bayerjo, and I am Dr. VR. I invite you to register to my podcast to stay updated with new episodes when they are published. Simply hit the register link on Dr. VR's channel, as well as the bell icon next to it to be notified. For the seventh episode, I have the pleasure of having Kara Maliki Sanchez, who is a multidisciplinary artist and the founder, executive director, and programmer of the Festival of International Virtual and Augmented Reality Stories, most commonly known as FIVARS, as well as VRTO, the yearly Spatial Media World Conference held in Toronto in Canada. Hi, Karim, and welcome to Dr. VR. So great to be on the show with you. Great. Thank you so much. Very happy to have you. Karim, you, you've got an impressive filmography. Folks, I, I, by the way, invite you to check it out on IMDb. <laughs> And you're not just an actor, you're also a musician and an author and more. And plus, you recently made it into the prestigious list of 100 original voices in XR. Can you please share your background experience with virtual reality? How did it all begin? Um, when I was a kid, I just had this real interest in everything to do with science fiction art there was like amazing pulp art in the 50s and 60s and 70s my dad had a huge collection of books he also had books about consciousness cognition um there was a book by donald hoffman called the mind's eye which always fascinated me i might have been drawn to it by the weird cover art but i was exposed in that book to the idea that the way we think and the way we perceive the world is not the same as the world itself. And that stuck with me for the rest of my life. He, I also asked him at one point, what's the hardest book to read? <laughs> um, and he said it was called Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Oh. And um, I remember also spending a lot of time wanting to understand that book. And I, I think I spent a couple of years on just the first page trying to figure out how could I be smart enough or well-equipped enough to understand what is happening in this language. <clears throat> and it continued with things like Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, uh, which again played with the notion of empirical truth versus how it might be manipulated and what we think about and and how we can have the wool pulled over our eyes. And then later, uh, I had a friend at University of Toronto who was studying with Northrop Fry, and, and they were doing a lot of stuff with like post-structuralism and Derrida and everything. And I got really down the rabbit hole of deconstructionism and all of that kind of stuff. And so constantly, I was in this game of like dismantling what reality is, right? This ossified notion of of what were handed down as some sort of single point of truth versus the fact that we could escape it and 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 be aware of the the manacles that hold us in place. Um, so that's that's like from a intellectual perspective where my curiosity was. And you know, in the '90s, I was a new media kind of kid. I was doing interviews with the Toronto Star about CD-ROMs and. Um, uh, the new interactive computer graphics and all these cool things that were coming into the home. And 
I had an Amiga computer way back in the day that did really amazing ray traced graphics, like way ahead of anything else around it. So cut to, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, and I went to this thing called IndieCade, um, which was a, a festival for indie game developers in Culver City. And it was being run by some people who would turn out, I would find out are really quite amazing. Um, Sam Roberts, who famously uh, curated the, the, the video game called um, Super Columbine Massacre into the Sundance Festival. And it was massively controversial. Um, and Celia Pierce, at, I think she's at USC, who wrote the book Communities at Play, which is about migrating digital nomadic groups that go from one platform to the next. Anyway, and I got a lot of inspiration from that. I had started a blog called IndieGameReviewer.com around 2007 because I was I just wanted to kind of capture what was going on in the indie space. Um, games like Braid by Jonathan Blow were were doing this precise sort of postmodern take on on standard platformers that you could use a mechanic to tell a story like you could rewind time and and correct your pat errors of your past um and and fez by phil fish was playing with 2d and 3d uh you know and yeah there was this amazing period and, and then gone home was a really important piece um that that it was a you know so-called walking simulator. There wasn't a better name for it at the time. Oh, you wow. basically had these games where you would just sort of walk through the world and you would pick up things and you would infer things from the environment. And that was the, the point. So people would make fun of them and be like, I just speed ran the game Gone Home in 14 seconds. But I was like, it's literally about the opposite of that. It's literally about go in and take your time and consider the mise-en-scene and the, you know, and the environment and what's going on, what stories you can take from environment. So that went on for a couple of years. There was things like everybody's gone to the rapture and amnesia. And uh, I think most famously dear Esther, uh, mm -hmm. which were just, you just walk through these worlds. And, and I thought there was like a longing in game development, you know, something between the complexity and depth of the emotion that's being, and these sort of fringe fringe topics that are being addressed by indie games, which AAAs just couldn't hope to, to do because they would never recoup on their investment. And then these walking simulators, which are like people really want to be embodied in these worlds and just exist in them. So I was, you know, I was tracking all of that while this Kickstarter by Palmer Lucky showed up. Um, you know, he wanted to raise... I don't know if he wanted to raise $100,000 or something, but he raised a million or 2 million on that Kickstarter for his VR headset. And I think it was 2011, 2012, probably. Was I it. think it was 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but he, you know, right before that, he was an intern with my colleague, Jackie Mori at USC. And so I, that's why I get confused a little bit about the year because he was, he was tooling around over there in the games department and experimenting with this stuff and then <clears throat> i think 2012 was when yeah that all formally launched um wow i was yeah <laughs> very intertwined 
Yeah, yeah. I was going to the NAB conference, the National Association of Broadcasting Conference in, in Vegas every year. And that was always like um, a harbinger of what was to come. You know, I've been going and we'd just come out of the era of 3D TVs where everything was going to be 3D cinema and everything was going to be 3D, 3D. <clears throat> and at the same time, the IVRPA uh, or as IVPRA, I can't remember the I'm sort of mildly dyslexic, but um, there was this association around uh, panoramic photography and stitching panoramas together and creating like 360 images. And that was slowly growing into the possibility that one day that could be video. And at NAB, you started to see things like GoPro and bubble cam and other things start to show these early consumer versions of 360 cameras. So there was this, uh, this like convergence from walking simulators and panoramic photography. Uh, and then this Kickstarter that this kid was running to, to try to see if he could prototype something. And then by 2013, my indie game reviewer did a review of the Oculus DK1. And I saw this 640 by 480 uh, Citadel demo that was converted for VR. And I literally freaking lost my mind of course i i just was like unca i was incapable of coping with what i experienced <laughs> um the whole thing is on youtube still like all of us experiencing it for the first time my grandfather i think he was he must have been i don't know 80 or something at the time put it on and he was just going for a wild ride wow um and then, yeah, and so then, you know, 2014 or so, NAB started to have sessions about VR, but there was one particular session way, way, way back in the farthest corner of the farthest convention hall about, you know, five different companies that were doing different VR stuff. One of them had 180 capture glasses, and then I think Andy Cochran was there showing some sort of demo and and then we saw this thing for the blue from weaver uh, uh which was you know the famous demo where you could stand under the ocean and watch these wh whales swim by you so i'm almost done with my story so i got in the car on that after seeing that talk and i registered the domain virtual reality.to um because I decided I'm going to start a meetup in, in Toronto about virtual reality. And, uh, you know, I had to, I had to register the domain with the country of Tonga because that's how you get the <laughs> .to domain. Um, I like that. And then I think about six months after I came back to Toronto and I was, you know, doing a couple of these meetups, I, we did this show at Ryerson now called Metropolitan University mm -hmm. um, called VAR which was virtual and augmented reality. And VAR was the first time that all of these different little VR clusters and AR developers and everything kind of all came together under one roof. And it was quite a big show um, because really nothing like that had happened yet. Uh, I did that with Joseph Ellsworth and uh, David, um, I think it's David, uh, I can't remember his name right now. Anyways, it was a long time ago. So um, that eventually turned into five R's. So it was five R's became the Festival of International Virtual Augmented Reality Stories, which was a combination of VAR, 
and VRTO and the Toronto International Film Festival as a concept that I had for like how we could bring culture and uh, international media media together and under one roof and really explore like what was going on outside of North America. Wow, I like how it all started. I feel like it's coming from very like far, far back. And um, how it all began just tells me a lot about your 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 path into virtual environments, virtual reality and all that how it all started and also how curious and eager you are to learn about the subject, which is something I always uh, deeply admired. Can you tell us about the inception of Five Rs, what it's like to kickstart a virtual reality festival? Okay. Um, well, I, you know, I was in a band in, in the 90s, so I had this experience putting on events. Um, I, I wasn't just like the kind of band where we would go up on stage and play our, our banjos and whatever, but more that I want, you know, my theatrical background, I grew up as a child actor in theater and whatever. So I always wanted to put on a show. And I had a lot of experience kind of uh, creating a, a, an occasion, you know, and my Ecuadorian family also, our house was always about, we had random people coming through for whatever reason, and we had to do instant dinners for 20 people. <clears throat> so organizing people was not a problem for me. It was something inherent. Um, but I remember in 2015 when we, when we put on our first show, I think it was in September of 2015, uh, we had to dig for content. There, there wasn't really that much out there. So there was a couple of folks in Toronto, uh, Ellie Rene had a piece called, um, I am you, where you put on a VR headset and became the other person watching yourself, um, in this story, Blair Renault had something he had worked on called techno lust which was a early vr cybertopi well cyberpunk world um there was also this cronenberg piece that came out of the canadian film center so we had that little cluster of folks that had been getting some development money or whatever and then i remember actively reaching out on youtube and finding some pieces and asking if we could use their stuff in this new festival the only other thing that was kind of like it at the time was the Kaleidoscope Festival um, mm -hmm. started by Rene Pinel and his partner. And they were basically touring from city to city with a van full of swivel chairs and then getting local people to find them a venue um, in exchange for the right to exhibit. And, you know, I kind of got my hands smacked for this before because I sounds like I'm talking smack about them, but I'm not. It was a sort of a critical eye that observed that when they did shows, there was these long lineups. People would kind of go and then there'd be 15, 20 people deep waiting to sit at one experience. And then you sat down, you did it. And then you unceremoniously kind of jettisoned out of your chair for the next person to come in. And I thought this can't be how we're going to exhibit VR. <laughs> so I, I try to figure out how could we do this without lineups and set up a system so that people could watch enough content, but also not hog their chair. Um, and so Joseph and I talked about these things called rip tickets, where you would have almost like a carnival stack of tickets. It was a piece of paper. And when you each each letter of five R's represented five minutes. So if you wanted to watch a five minute piece, we ripped off one letter, 10 minute piece, we ripped off two letters. And when your ticket was done, you know, you were done. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and we did that for a couple of years and then eventually we came up with better methods. But it, I guess my answer is that it's not just about finding content. It's about how are you going to exhibit this content? How are you going to take care of uh, the participants who come in, you know, with all of their different <clears throat> needs and levels of familiarity with media like this, uh, with the technology, you know, they have different hairstyles. They got earrings, makeup, uh, nervousness, anxiety. They might be, they might have vestibular issues. Uh, they might be really seasoned gamers who, who don't want any of your help. And we had to develop an understanding for how to properly exhibit, mitigate lineups, um, and be able to handle a wide variety of formats <clears throat> for which we would remove the friction in exhibiting. <clears throat> yeah, like from what I can see, curating virtual reality is fascinating because you're not only looking to find, you know, great, compelling VR pieces, you also have to basically come up with a plan that would allow people to experience VR pieces without, you know, going through lineups, like you mentioned. So I think it's quite fascinating. It differs a lot from curating art in a museum or a cinematheque, for instance. And I'm sure you, you were asked before how different it is. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking as I curated film myself at a Cinematheque Quebecoise in Montreal. And this is completely different because people just sit down in chairs and watch a movie, you know? Mm -hmm. And from you and having the experience of attending five hours a couple of times, I, I, I can only imagine what you came up with the ideas because everything works quite well. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really, uh, I've always been um, fascinated by how you deal with these things. How do you say it's different from other places where you experienced VR in the past? <clears throat> like how is five hours different from other VR exhibits? Yes. Um, I, I always tend to feel like when I go to those that they're, you know, there's some that are better than others for sure. I always feel slightly awkward when I go to a VR exhibit that's not my own. Um, I did this one knockoff Banksy type thing in LA where it was fine. They had this quiet little room and you sat down and someone explained to you how VR worked. And I was like, yeah, no, I get it. And mm -hmm. And there was a lot of to-do about it. And then we got in and we sat and we watched a piece and then we exited. That was fine. It was quiet. It wasn't a thing. Um, I remember one time going to a trade show and there was like this red or these stanchions around a certain area and it had, you know, 30 chairs and people were all just sitting in there spinning around watching stuff. And then outside of the stanchions, the ropes, other people were just taking pictures of them and posting things like, ah, the zombie apocalypse has come. And I was like, this is the problem is this kind of um, ridicule of people who are prone and in a private and an emotional sort of setting, uh, but they're exposed to anybody's watchful eyes, you know? And I thought that's really problematic. Yeah. So often I find it uncomfortable. I also have obviously concerns about hygiene, you know, pink eye and sweat and it's disgusting. So yeah. We we always put like silicone covers on stuff while possible. We don't use alcohol wipes or whatever because it can degrade all the plastics and the lenses and everything. So we use uh, these clean boxes, which are created by a company called Clean Box Tech. And look, not everybody can afford a clean box, but for me, it's super important. Um, 
and we we make a big deal to promote them because I want them to survive and proliferate and I want the prices to come down. But they are effectively these boxes that lock and they shine a near medical grade, I think it's medical grade UV light um, to debacterialize something. I think I just made up that word. And then they have like air, you know, strong puffs of air that blow off particles and they dry it off and everything. Um, so that's one approach that we take. But, you know, you're in the show and you have six people that are scheduled that all of a sudden, you know, the group from before is late and, and could they just do like one or two experiences? Now you have eight people on four stations and you have to manage the time. And, you know, in the olden times, they would say in advance, I want to watch this piece. So here's my ticket to watch this piece. But we changed our format and set because they might not have liked that piece or it might have not worked for them or whatever. And I felt it was unfair. So what we did is instead we created these two hour blocks and you purchase a ticket for a two hour block and then you come in and that is your two hours. And you can watch anything that's in the catalog um, during those two hour blocks. Now people might say, well, you have 24 hours of content this year with 65 pieces. Um, how is that fair? And the fact is that we discovered that after about an hour and a half of watching VR, people kind of are full, like they can't deal with more. Yeah. Um, you also have those maniacs who can, you know, live in VR for 48 straight hours and they sleep with their headsets on, but that's a total outlier. Um, I'm sure that you can reflect back to me, your experience that when you do, you know, two, three, four pieces, you're done. You need water. You want to go outside. Yeah. You want to walk around for a bit. Absolutely. You almost get numb. You get yeah. some sort of a headache. You need to move around and you get overwhelmed. You want to go back to reality, quote unquote. Yeah, it's a lot of cognitive load for sure. It is. It is. So like, yeah, virtual virtual realities festivals aren't something we hear about every day. We, we hear about it here and there, but not as much as film festivals. Like, And I have the feeling that virtual reality festivals often seem like extensions of existing festivals like Venice or South by Southwest. And ironically, you also happen to open five hours during the final weekend of the TIFF of the Toronto International Film Festival. But your festival, however, seems is actually very unique. So can you describe the current place and significance of virtual reality in the cultural sphere? Oh, thanks for that question. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think, um, you know, I don't know exactly what the timelines are, but yes, we started to see this VR, which then became the XR um, addendum to existing film festivals. So, you know, Shari at Sundance was doing the New Frontiers for quite a while. Um, and, and that used to be, you know, new media arts of all kinds. And then it sort of became more specifically about VR and AR. And now they pulled back quite a bit. I remember one year Sundance was doing um, even like the the online web XR yeah. approach to trying to do some of the stuff online, but they also pulled back on that because it's frankly hard and we should talk about that later. Um, Tribeca went all in on it for a while and this year I think they had 13 experiences, but that's you know a far cry from when it was more than that. Yeah, Venice the FNC, is, the FNC yes. in Montreal. Yes, yes. Uh, Montreal is a whole other thing. <laughs> Montreal has its own whole racket going on and, and it's great. Like there's tons of, of this development coming out of Montreal and Quebec and, you know, there's the Phi Center and there's Mutech and yeah. 
um, all, all sorts of stuff there. Um, and then Venice, of course, you know, is sort of staked its, its ground and, and they've doubled down on VR, whereas other ones have pulled back on it. Like Khan, I think this year just canceled its whole XR program with it six did. months notice. So uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't ever say, you know, we're the only one or the first one ever in this medium, because I can assure you you're not, but I think Fiverr's is pretty rare and being, having always been and continuing to be solely VR, AR um, and immersive media festival. I agree. I agree. Five R's went online during the COVID-19 pandemic, which I imagine was quite a delicate matter for you and the festival. Did the landscape of VR changed after COVID? Um, well, it's a... So VR has been declared dead every day by somebody. Um, Just like cinema added during its exemption. <laughs> right. It's all dead all the time. TV is dead. Radio is dead. Everything exactly. is dead. Um, but it didn't hurt VR when everybody was in lockdown. Um, it's extremely unfortunate time and extremely difficult time for everybody. Uh, we lost way, way too many people. Um, and when it came, you know, I, I had to, so we're talking December, people start to mutter about this thing. Let's this, this, this weird cold. And then January, February, there's a few cases now showing up in, the, in North America. People don't really know what to make of it. And Sundance, uh, I think, I, I think Sundance might've happened, but then all of a sudden things started to fall to it, like South by and Tribeca all canceled yes. and all these yeah, things happen. And yeah. I'm sitting there going, well, what am I going to do? I've sold a whole bunch of tickets for my conference. So the short version of the story is I, I spoke to a couple of different people in the industry that I knew, and they said, have you heard of this guy and that thing and then whatever it is. And I ended up looking at this platform called Mozilla Hubs, which was a bunch of, it was the Firefox Foundation's open source initiative into web 3D and also a bunch of expats from Altspace, some from Toronto actually, uh, who <clears throat> were suddenly having to rev up a lot you know, this place, this meeting place. And at that time I was looking around for virtual conference solutions and, oh my God, they were terrifying. I mean, they were $10,000 a day to rent these platforms and oh. they were little more than like virtual 2D conference rooms and stuff. <clears throat> so it was on, un, it was infeasible, you know, all these virtual conference, I mean, there was some that were 50, $60,000 to lease for a week. Um, and wow. they had no idea what was coming. So I immediately got me and Stephanie who were um, doing things at the time together there. We, we must've researched, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 solutions and saw that that was not going to happen. So hubs was free. It was open source. It was working. And I had to very quickly figure out, okay, who's going to model the spaces for me? What is Amazon web services and how does it work? I needed to install um, their fledgling experiments with custom white label versions of Hub so I could do my own branding and I could run administrative user management in the background. And so I had like some of the lead developers working with me, stepping me through like Node.js and all these packages that had to be installed and how to set up Amazon Web Services. And it, like six weeks later, 
we launched the VRTO conference and someone said to me, you know, since you're not doing it in person, you have more time. Like you could do this once a week or something instead. So I, I thought about it a lot. I said, you know what? I have nothing else to do. I can't go outside. I can't touch groceries. You know, we had no idea what COVID was um, or how it worked. So the rest of my life was going to be in this basement that I was living in. And I said, cool, let's spread it out over four weeks. Well, the days in between suddenly got filled in with talks and speakers and presentations. And so all of a sudden we ran a 30 day virtual conference online. Um, and it the taught flotilla. me a lot. Yeah, the flotilla. flotilla. Yep. Did you visit it? Of course. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, it was great. A lot of people came through there. Um, yeah. It was, it was amazing. And the other thing about it that it taught me immediately was, oh, suddenly I can have the CEO of this company in Silicon Valley because it's virtual. <laughs> you know, for you young ones that were born after 2020, um, Zoom wasn't even a thing then. Like it was something that some people had on their phones if they wanted to occasionally have a video chat, but it wasn't like now where Zoom is like Kleenex or FedEx. It was they were caught totally off guard too. So this idea of, of having meetings all the time on video conferences was not normal. Um, and it also became the only thing that everybody was doing. And so 3D space was so much more rich and embodied and you had locations that you could move to. You could duck out into little corners. You could put on ad hoc plays and make props and and be embodied in any sort of form or shape or avatar that you wanted. And I have like phenomenological memories of the flotilla. Like we were there together on this flying space city, you know? Yeah. Designing a festival like yours comes with significant challenges, as I can see, depending on what's going on in the world, COVID, um, you know, the change of the cultural sphere. Could you elaborate on some of the, some of the biggest hurdles you face you face each year with Vivars? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you can't do location based entertainment while there's a pandemic. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then when even when we came out of it, uh, the first year or so, everybody saw to wear masks. And I can assure you, it is not fun to wear both a headset and a mask <laughs> when you're sweating and you've got all these parts all over your face that you're you know sliding around and everything so you become more experienced and robust like how are you going to handle this and how are you going to handle turnover quickly and you know manage people's patience and their levels of comfort and you know all of those things made us much more robust um <clears throat> as far as how the virtual worlds evolved into five hours well i couldn't do five hours with hubs because hubs just did not have the support for streaming 360 video which was really the point um i remember museum of other realities approached us and they do amazing work and everything but there was two problems one was that they wanted us to charge our participants 20 dollars to buy museum of other realities first and then buy a ticket to our festival and i was like that's just not sustainable it's not going to work it's not going to happen and the other thing was that with MOR, you know, once everything had been packaged together and bundled up, you're talking about a 60 to 80 gigabyte download. Now, these days, 
when you have something like Baldur's Gate 3 or Starfield coming in at 180 gigabytes <laughs> as games, that doesn't seem so like so much, but it's a big ask to, of course. to you know, ask the general public who just wants to watch some neat experiences, first of all, to figure out how to download 80 gigabytes and install it and put on a headset and all that. So none of that works um, as, as far as I'm concerned, unless you're some sort of tech savvy um, person. So we moved over to a platform that I've always liked very much. I like the people behind it. I like the culture of it. It was called Janus. Um, Janus VR came out of Toronto as well. It was started by James McRae, who was a student at U of T. And then his mentor and professor there was Dr. Karan Singh, who was famously one of the creators of facial animation and Maya um, and Houdini. And they launched this web 3D virtual reality experience that really updated us from the 1990s days of VRML. Uh, and then they couldn't quite make a go of it commercially. Um, so they eventually released the source code and a guy named James Bakianu took it and started to convert it for JavaScript so it could run on the web. And they had been to VRTO several times showing off this stuff and I thought it was really cool. And I said, oh, that that engine is is really powerful. Like I've seen them run tons of 360 video real time on that thing as far back as 2015 or 2016 and at some tech demos in LA. So I had to approach James and I said, look, I don't have any money, but I think we should do this thing to kind of revitalize the Janus platform and, and take advantage of all the work that was done by all these amazing developers around the world. And at that point, it kind of was just sitting there fallow, except for James's update. So over the next two years, three years now, James and I have been developing 5Rs online, and we've got a private GitHub repo where we've built out tons and tons and tons of features. I think there's almost 1,300 commits to the, to the GitHub repo, which is you know where the code base sits. Um, we've done all sorts of experiments with the transcode pipeline. So at first we were using Amazon Web Services to stream video. Now, Amazon Web Services is what's used by Netflix and Hulu and Crackle and all oh. these other companies okay. to, to show video. What they do is they use something called HLS. Uh, well, yeah. And what it does is it cuts video up into like three second or four second slices, and then it plays it back to you. And it's constantly checking how your data rate's going. So if you have, you know, poor internet connection, it'll kind of drop down a little bit and then it'll come back up again. But the problem was that it capped out at 4K and we were dealing with minimum 4K for 360 video. So eventually we abandoned their native video transcode and streaming and we implemented our own based on FFmpeg encoder and had to write all kinds of flags and conditions. Like if it's this, if it's that, if this, you know, and then... <clears throat> Steadily in the background, I was building this user interface to manage all of this um, so we could say, cool, this video is 360, but it's also stereoscopic 3D, which is either over under or side by side versions. It's either 180, it's got mono audio, it's got 5.1 stereo, it's got ambisonic order one and two. And so we can manage all those different formats now. And when we transcode something so you send me um a 360 video that's 6k resolution 
And then we put it into our transcoder and we kick it off by basically renting a whole bunch of super powerful CPUs and GPUs um, for a, a certain block of time. And then it goes out and makes like, I don't know, 16 versions of it. So you have the 1080p version, the 2K, the 4K, the 6K versions, and you have them in H.264 compression. You have H.265, which is used for headsets like the Quest, and you've got the VP9 version, which is used as a fallback for like legacy browser support. And all of those versions for every single film <laughs> takes up a lot of space. Um, and we serve it to you based on your headset, your browser, and everything else. So it's become quite sophisticated. And I think there's nothing quite like it out there. Uh, because when you come to the Five Hours Festival online, all you do is like if you're registered on Eventbrite, you get automatically registered into our theater. You don't have to think about that again. And then you go into a little 3D space that lays out the different categories, which are um, little video kiosks that we auto-generate using JavaScript. And then you click the thing and it'll start to play 360 video immediately. There's no buffer time. There's no jerkiness. There's no downloading software, no drivers, nothing. It'll just play. Yeah, and if you I have don't... a headset, it'll also recognize that and put you into the 360 3D version of it. Yeah, I don't recall seeing anything like it before. Which, which is great because I believe like you by doing this, I think you in a way democratize virtual reality for everyone because not everyone is able to buy the latest headset, you know, but everyone should be able to experience VR as they wish without these constraints, you know. So I think this is a great move and this is something that 5R should be celebrated for. Among, Thank you. among many other things. You're welcome. Um, technology, you know, aside, um, what are, in your opinion, the key elements that makes a VR festival successful? Um, it's funny because the hardest part is to just get people to buy a ticket yeah. um, or to, to hear about it or to not discard it like, oh, that's that weird thing for nerds or, you know, that's that NFT racket or it's all AI and it's evil. Like there's so many hurdles in the social um, layer that we have to overcome. But when anyone puts it on, they're instantly convinced. Exactly. They just say, oh my God, I I've never experienced something like this before. And these are you know, savvy, intelligent, uh, people with lots of experience, televisual, like producers, directors, professors, um, all kinds of folks come in. And then I sit them down in front of a 3D movie about making sushi and they're totally blown away. <laughs> um, but there's a reason for that. You know, it's not just that you're putting on a headset and watching a movie that's 3D. There's, a, there's other technology happening in there where it is predicting the next nine frames of your head's movement and it is stabilizing the horizon such that it feels like the object that you're looking at is persistent. So when somebody sees what you're watching from the outside on the screen, you know, the pictures are moving all over the place along with your head. But when you're inside of that VR experience, that floor seems stable regardless of how you move your head. And that is what creates that phenomenological sense of presence and place. 
which makes it a different medium. So first of all, it's seeing is believing. As soon as people go in or hear it, the spatial audio, um, all of those cues that are persistent in space are deeply affecting. Um, the other thing though about five hours it is it's not a bunch of zombie rail shooters. It's legitimately an international festival. We have this just this year we have 25 countries represented and they're not the same 25 countries as last year's countries. We've had, I don't know, 60, 70 countries show pieces at five hours over the years. Yeah. Very multicultural. Um, yeah. We have Malawi this year. We have Argentina. We have um, multiple pieces from China. We have pieces from Taiwan from uh, three or four pieces from different parts of Australia. Uh three or four different stories that talk about three or four different indigenous groups for different reasons. There's one out of Brazil, there's one out of Argentina, there's one out of um, the South of Australia um, and so on and so forth. And to be able to spend time with folks in their, whatever way they want to tell their story from whatever milieu they're from um, is a true opportunity to expand the world that you are currently familiar with. And that is the most important part of five, five, five bars for me, not all of yeah. this tech. I agree with you. It opens the doors to many, I would say many ways of seeing the world, different ways of seeing the world through different eyes, through different perspectives, first person. And it's something I, it's one of the many reasons why I love VR and I study it and teach it and research it. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on location-based experiences like The Void and, and Sandbox VR, which were discussed in my fifth episode with uh, Curtis Hickman, uh, co-founder of The Void. Awesome. I love that you had Curtis Hickman. That's so great. <laughs> um, first of all, Curtis is is rad and, and that's a great get for your show. I'm, I'm going to be excited to share that with people. Um, obviously, we know that Curtis just released the book Hyper Reality, yes, which is a gift because for many years, you know, what was going on behind the curtain was very opaque. Um, and I was a total fan of of the void. I oh yeah, would go whenever I could, and I would, um, you know, I I really get pulled in. I, I did um, some location-based hyper-reality stuff at a two-bit circus in downtown LA, which is just as Curtis Hickman is the, is the progeny of a great fantasy writer, uh, Tracy Hickman. Um, two-bit circus is the progeny of a famous video game developer. So um, the son of the guy that invented Atari started this VR arcade downtown um, called two-bit circus and they had this thing called the maze of the minotaur which was just a bunch of plexiglass walls and you go through it and you feel heat and you walk across planks and there's like you know uh, misty air and i was like screaming like a oh. child through the whole thing um there's some famous phone video of me just screaming and shouting and begging for mercy as i went through that anyway <laughs> so it's extremely effective um it is completely transportive. And when you have a backpack on and you can move around freely, but you also have effectively the power of PCVR, 
uh, it can be really deep. Um, the void shut down, part, you know, part of it is because companies like them and Telltale Games start to get further and further into these like IP licenses with companies like Disney and DC Comics and whatever, and then they become sort of too entrenched in those you know, those deals and then those deals might pull out, they might get cold feet and then all of a sudden everybody's kind of left hanging and their budgets have inflated and they don't have the support that they need to keep going. Mm -hmm. um, but they're all great. I mean, Dreamscape in uh, West, not uh, what's it called? Century City in LA is another good one that's still going strong. They're always sold out. They have the Men in Black experience and um, Alien Zoo. And yeah, Sandbox. I remember when IMAX was in the field and they had yep. a bunch of locations and and that was good too, but IMAX was really expensive um, for what it was, but it's great. So I have the book. I, I am, you know, I tell people sometimes you think this is cool. You think that being able to walk across the room and pick up a virtual uh, matchstick is cool. Wait till you reach out for a railing of a staircase and it's really there and wait till you think you're going to sit on a virtual couch and it's really there or you're exactly. going to pick up a gun and it's really there yeah that is a whole other layer oh that feeling that i had when i played ghostbusters and star wars at the void was amazing yeah i'll never forget it and um as curtis mentioned in our in the the episode he was in uh, they're currently working on the Void 2.0, and hopefully it's going to happen. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. the you know the pandemic just decimated yes this entire industry, help. but it's it, it could come back for sure. I don't see why not, and it'll be stronger and better than it ever was. Absolutely, you've been involved in behind the scenes work for VR projects like Broken Spectrum you know among others it's a vr game that's available on the app lab in the meta store it's being developed by it was developed by games by stitch mm -hmm. so can you tell us more about your experiences working on such vr projects you know behind the scenes sure i think that um as a private consultant i am um sometimes you know desired for projects because i've just seen so many pieces uh it's not just the 35 to 60 pieces we select for five hours every year, but there's hundreds of submissions that I've looked at. Also, because I run IndieGameReviewer.com, I've done the same with indie games. I've seen thousands of indie games, and I get to see patterns of what ultimately works and what doesn't work and what people that are creating these experiences can do to have more people play their game by reducing the friction, right? Whether it's onboarding or how menus work or the UI or the locomotion or the different affordances, all of those things can be better optimized to align with established standards. And if you're going to break the mold the way that Broken Spectre did, then you have to make some concessions for some things to be familiar while you introduce new things that are not. So in the case of Broken Spectre, um, Evan approached me and said, hey, I'd like your input on this thing. And they built out their own custom hand tracking, which preceded the MetaQuest having hand tracking um, publicly. So they were sort of just making it up as they went along and they were doing a lot of trial and error and everything. 
And I tried the game out and I said, look, the biggest problem I have is that the tutorial is just super confusing. It's actually not helping me. It's making things worse and it's too long and lots of stuff isn't working. And like, how are you testing this? So they had been, um, you know, they'd been doing some testing, but I said, I want to formalize a, a testing process for this where we could ask certain different kinds of questions to get a better sense of who's coming in, where they're coming from, what their expectations are. And then really just focus on those things. So I ended up um, sort of designing, you know, with with their team, some more specific and tuned play tests. And then we had them do talk aloud recordings. So people would go into their quest and they would play through the game and they would talk the entire time. We would have absolutely no interference or intervention. And then I watched probably 48 to 50 hours of these playbacks and just started to compile notes on what I was observing. And it's not just what's wrong or what is problematic, but weird discoveries that happen along the way. For example, one person never figured out that you're supposed to put down the controllers and use hand tracking, and they finished the whole game with controllers. It was oh. painful, but I was <laughs> like, hey, did you guys know that you could do this whole game with controllers? Um, and... And then we had people that didn't speak English and spoke other languages first. And, you know, that was important. It's like, how are you addressing localization and how can you minimize text and use more like abstraction so that it's more of a universal thing? Um, how do you, how can you improve the fail states? So if you get eaten by the monster, like how do you make it so that it doesn't seem like, oh, that wasn't such a big deal, but you keep the tension high. There's a lot of considerations. We offered pages and pages and pages of notes and they surprisingly took a lot of them and incorporated them. And the various iterations that they took to improve uh, everything from the, the visual cues that you were getting on feedback for doing something to how to onboard it and optimize the, the tutorials, how to heighten the tension, everything. I mean, they deserve all of the critical acclaim and the nominations that they're getting right now. But it was definitely a super heavy slog. And there was definitely moments where it was like, how are we going to pull this off? Um, and I'm just honored to have been able to contribute in some way to uh, making it a better experience. At the beginning of the interview, we you briefly mentioned Umberto Eco, among other inspirations, you know, and 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 I'm a fan of his book, The Open Work, you know, that he's basically all about freedom of action you know, and how you can change and modify something in narrative or, or a theater play or a movie or whatever, an experience. So my question is, how much uh, freedom of action do you think a VR experience should have to be considered successful? Oh, well, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, I know about your interest in these things, and I think it's fascinating into itself. And I hope that you get interviewed a lot about the work you've been doing and the research um, I think that, how do I answer this? Okay, so in the early days of 360 and this new wave of 360 video, people thought, hey, look, you, you can show stuff everywhere. There's a frameless camera, you know, things from all sides. And so they would try to put stuff everywhere and razzle-dazzle you with the 360-ness of it all. But what we found was that often people would sort of look around at first and then they would just sort of park in this TV mode and stare straight ahead. Yeah. And you'd get lateral 
and tertiary information from, you know, your periphery. But other than that, people expected the action to be front and center. Um, the other problem was that you also expected everybody to be a director or have a cinematic eye or to care enough about something that they would direct their attention somewhere and they would actually often miss key details that would tell the story. So that's too much freedom. Um, it's not just too much freedom. It's, yeah, I mean, it's too much freedom. You got to direct the piece if you want to give a narrative. Of course. Um, I'm thinking of um, that great VR piece that was showing at your festival this year, Stay Alive, My Son. You oh, know, yeah. there's a narrative and you're inside the narrative. You're, you're, you're being guided, you know, to just being introduced to a narrative and for it to unfold, uh, just like a film. But you're also given a lot of freedom of action in it. You can, you were talking briefly before about walking simulator and, and stay awake, uh, stay alive. My son is a little bit about that in a way. You're in that house, you're able to watch stuff, you're able to grab things and and take your time as much as you want. And that to me is something to take into consideration for VR. What do you think? What's your view in this? Yeah, um, all astute observations, stay alive, my son, gives you sufficient agency to let it get its tendrils into your consciousness that you feel like you have some effect. Um, and you do have the time that you want to move things along. So it's waiting for you to participate in certain actions in order to move things forward. Mm -hmm. I have seen a different approach, however. Carol Silverman's piece, um, Belongings, which was her reflections on her mother's life after she passed away by looking at the things that she owned, had you picking up objects and looking at them and considering them and hearing some story about each of them. And at first I thought, oh, I must have triggered something in order to move the to the next scene, but it turned out that it was on a timer. So after you had spent a certain amount of time looking at stuff, you just were in a new environment with new stuff. And I interviewed her uh, about this. I said, you know, what was the choice about how to move forward in the thing? She goes, well, time just runs out. She goes, just like real life. You know, you're in a house with certain people having a certain thing and you think you're going to be there forever. And then one day everything changes, all that's gone. You're in a new place, new people. And you look back and you go, oh, that was then, this is now. And I thought that was really fascinating too. Yeah. Um, I, I don't I, think you ever have complete freedom in any game at all. I mean, there's, there's an experiment that Lana... Um, Lux did at VRTO this year about freedom of choice in a game. And she put people in a room and said, okay, you're going to go through this VR experience and your choices will matter. And then they would come out and she goes, oh, what moment did you feel like the story changed? And the trick was that actually there was no choice. They never had choice, but they believed that they had choice. Exactly. Um, Curtis Hickman told me he had stuff like that uh, in The Void, in um, one of his experiences that he created, Nicodemus or yeah. other things you, you you think that you're being guided but you're being given choices but it's so fluid and seamless mm -hmm. that you think that you have freedom of choice it's just uh freedom of action sorry i think it's what you mentioned the analog piece is very interesting in that sense yeah i mean it's like real life right i mean my interest in vr is its ability to show us how we are locked into ideologies that we don't even know we have so yeah. 
by being able to see how the mind is um, conditioned and informed through these subtle cues, we may also have the hope that we can be aware of the same in our real life where we think we have choice, but really um, any algorithm, any machine learning algorithm could look at your receipts from the last two years and predict what you're going to do three weeks from now, where you're going to go shopping, who you're going to be with, how long you're going to spend there. Yeah. And even if it's not predicting them, it's going to condition you to doing those things. That might sound like a cynical take, but anybody who questions what I'm talking about doesn't know what a Facebook pixel is. Exactly. I agree with that. And um, when it comes to VR experiences, I always refer to us users as spectators. We're a spectator of an experience, but we're also actors in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's my concept I created. And I also always try to apply it and try to see if it's good enough to explain what I'm trying to explain and if it corresponds to to VR as a whole when it comes to freedom of action. Well, you know, we have two categories for people's choice of five hours. One's called the interactive and one's called the passive. Yeah. Um, sometimes when people submit works, they say, I'm not sure which one to put my piece in because it's 360 and you can look in all directions. I say, well, no, it's a passive piece. A yeah. passive piece is where you don't have sufficient agency to modulate what goes on inside of the thing. You could observe it however you want in whatever way you want, but that's different than um, having um, input into the world of the play such that it actually changes what's in situ in that world. Yeah. What for you defines a successful VR experience? I know it's a broad question, but for you as a curator of a VR festival, I want to ask it to you. <laughs> oh, um, well, if it stays with me, that's one thing. You know, if I'm thinking about it after, if I'm changed by it, that's clearly successful. Um, sometimes pieces are, I would say, they're not aesthetically beautiful. They might be clunky and awkward. They might even be partially broken but they stick with me for some reason, something that they introduced me to. I don't want to single out anything in this context right now, but let's just say there's some pieces that appear to be one thing and yet they're teaching you about something else. And I will now carry that forward with me. So that's a successful piece. Mm -hmm. um, an unsuccessful piece, besides things like it being unplayable or difficult to use or whatever else, are those ones where I could take it or leave it and it leaves me feeling mildly nauseated at the end. Yeah. I feel like if successful VR experience um, has to justify the reason why it's in VR. Yes, that's a great answer. That's a better answer than mine. <laughs> I, Because I, I, I see experiences that I'm like, well, this could have, the message could have gone through easily in a movie or a documentary or whatever it is. But in VR, it ha it, it needs a purpose, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's next for it to be in VR is, is the is the actual answer to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's next for you? Uh, what's next for you as an artist? And what's next for you? What's what's also next for Five Rs? Um, well, I can tell you that we are taking our learnings from the Five Rs experience uh, and what we've built with the web 3d framework and we're going to apply it for a canadian government funded 
uh, museum, a virtual museum of Canadian, Hispanic, Latin American heritage. Amazing. Uh, that's going to incorporate everything from, you know, in that case, it's really got to be accessible. It has to be accessible to not a VR public. I mean, Canada won't even fund something that's typically VR because of the socioeconomic barrier. So we had to make the case, and we can, that you could come from any background, speak any language, have any level of technology that, you know, is contemporary and access this content. Um, it also allowed us to use all sorts of things that we um, can these days, like photogrammetric capture of these heritage costumes, which can be optimized to run in a web 3D space. Because the original costumes are like 10 million polys, and we have to get them down to 1,000 polys. Um, we are able to use things like waypoints and those work in concert with accessibility concerns like screen readers and um, text to speech and how to navigate that and the metadata. So there's all these great learnings that we can apply to this. And I'm really excited to see how that comes together. Also 360 videos, uh, and you'll be able to go in and watch people wearing these costumes in the streets of Canada and how, how they look and how they sound. So that's really exciting. Um, five hours is about to go into its 10th year. Mm, so I know. Unbelievably, we've survived for a decade on yeah. nothing but VR and XR alone. Um, so we'll do some, you know, we'll figure out what is 10 years. Maybe, maybe the industry will have something to say about that, or maybe we'll just keep going as we have. But um, we did get more submissions than we ever have this year. And, you know, it's an incredible gift and an honor to me, to receive unsolicited submissions from Malawi and the Netherlands and all over South America. It's just like awe-inspiring that someone's heard of the festival, that they took the time to submit to the festival, that they're even doing work in their ecosystem. Um, and that is, that is its own reward. So I am very anxious to see what even another year in this space brings and shows us and teaches us. Um, just as I am incapable of putting down this opportunity to help new independent creators have a place to actually show their work because there are very few out there. I agree. To be honest with you, um, looking back at history, when cinema um, was born in 1895, it was only institutionalized uh, in 1909. It took 14 years for it to be institutionalized and to become an art, actual art form. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was popular here and there. Of course, people would rush to see the next Nickelodeon, the next Kinetoscope, but it took 14 years. If you look at it, you know, the commercial birth of VR, I don't know, it's, it, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it was 2016 when the first affordable, quote unquote, headsets were released. Yeah, that's about right. We'll yeah. From the developer kits into the consumer models, for sure. Exactly. So looking back at history, I mean, I hope that in 14 years from 2016, 2030, I hope virtual reality would be considered, will be considered an art form. I think it is from my perspective as a fan, as a scholar and professor teaching in the field. I think it is, but I just want it to be institutionalized to be like a regular art form, like 
paintings or films or music or or literature or poetry you know mm-hmm. and uh, one thing i know for sure is five hours will be at the forefront and uh i really hope i know it's a lot of work but i really hope you're going to continue to push through and and uh make five hours happen every year oh i i appreciate that sentiment um you know whether or not we are still around in 2030 what we do have is an archive of the origins of this era of creativity in this medium. Um, We've worked very hard to improve our website such that you can now go there and you can click through by country, by format, by year, by affordance. And we're adding even more improvements. So you could now, we'll have an entire section for directors that can be dynamically generated. So you can see who the early auteurs and experimenters were in the medium. And that site is you know, less now of a marketing page as it is of a um, sort of critical catalog of pieces going back to 2015 to present um, and dozens of different countries and, 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 and approaches to the medium represented. That's amazing. Archives are very important, especially in the digital era. <laughs> Yeah. And how to preserve these pieces is another major concern. Um, as alt space went under, thousands of worlds did too. We had a piece submitted uh, in November of last year that by the time the festival was running could no longer operate. And this piece had won awards and everything else, but they built it all inside of alt space and there was no way to preserve it. So when building those kinds of worlds, um, you got to make sure that you also can catalog it, you know, output a single mesh or name the modules correctly so that they can be reconstituted. Um, same with 360, you know, output the highest res version and put it into some tape based storage somewhere. Cause I sometimes go back to creators and I say, can I, you know, bring this piece back in at higher resolution? Like, I don't know where it is. I don't know where those people are. And it's all being lost. Yeah. I know. Uh, that's, yeah, that's the many reasons why people were apprehensive of the digital uh, revolution. Yeah, <laughs> having, yeah. getting things, uh, having things lost and having to uh, export them to other, you know, medias to make sure that we maintain all of the archives. But yeah, thank, thank you for doing this job uh, with your uh, website and you are surely doing a great job with it. And I thank you very much for it. Karim, of course, Karim, thank you very much uh, for being on Dr. VR and good luck with the 10th edition of five hours next year. And it's all, it's one year from now, but I'm already excited. And (laughs) (laughs) so, yeah, I wish you all the best and uh, also good luck for VRTO and all of your future projects. Thank you. Yeah, we, um, so if you want to go to see what we're talking about, you can go to fivehours.net and fivehours.net was so named deliberately after the way that Toronto Film Festival is called tiff.net. Of course. That's why it's not fivehours.com. Um, it's also pronounced fivehours, not fevers. Um, and what else can I tell you about it? Oh yeah. And submissions are already opening like in two days for the next season. I don't know when you'll hear this podcast, if it's a hundred years hence, hi, I hope the world is cooled down a little bit and you're all okay. 
But yes, if you're hearing it in the short term, submissions will open at the end of September 2023 and you can get in early. Um, and, you know, the other thing I'll say is I'm now teaching Blender for Web 3D world building at UCLA Extension. Yes, true. Yes. Right alongside me is Jackie Mori, who's teaching experience design for XR and Michael Potts is also teaching world building. So as a timestamp, I just wanted to point out that it's, it's cool to see more and more institutions, as you put it, formalizing courses in this media to um, bring people up to speed and empower them to tell their stories in this way. And students constantly surprise me and blow me away with their ideas and their vision and their ability to execute. And even as short as like 11 weeks, which is the length of my course, they're able to come in, know nothing about modeling. At the end of it, they've got fully operational interactive worlds. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to make a note that it is more and more available to people. That's music to my ears, Karim. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks and good luck with this show. I'm really glad that you got it running. Thank you.